Well, good morning to those here, to those who are watching online this morning. Let's go ahead and, go ahead and open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. If you want to follow along in a blue pew Bible, I invite you to do so if you do not have your own. Um, and you can turn to page 973, which is where we will be setting out from this morning. But thank you to, uh, to Pastor Joe for, for leading us in that prayer this morning. And we want you to know that we view that space of congregational prayer as the, um, the primary place in our weekly gathering to address what you might call major current events. And it's not the only reason for that prayer. In fact, if you notice, Pastor Joe does a great job of kind of giving us a little primer before we pray. Why are we doing this? That prayer in our gatherings, not just a time to kind of smooth out awkward transitions, you know, the transition prayer, uh, but, but that we, we set aside a time in our liturgy, if you will, to pray together uh, as a church, to recognize that we are in desperate need for him in, in all times and, and that we want to come as a body every single week in prayer. And, uh, and that is also the place and the space where we can cry out together to him as a church for weighty matters that are happening in our world. And, and so, uh, again, we just want you to know that it is our posture to not just talk about it, but pray over it. And to not feel the pressure on our end to have to comment on current events or give our hot take as to why it happened or what should happen or what's going to happen, but to rather pray over them and for those involved. And, and depending on what that topic is, you know, this week we're thinking about war uh, happening on the other side of the world, uh, but, but in that helplessness that you probably all felt this past week on, on some level, in the weight of not knowing how to process that, how to carry that, um, or, or in, in this or in other times when, when things happen, especially over the last couple of years where there's real division as to what's happening and, and maybe you feel the pressure of which side do I need to take, what, what, which side should I be on here? Um, the conviction as a church to say we're, we're, we're going to bring this to the Lord in prayer first. That, that is our primary desire. And so thank you to Pastor Joe for giving us some collective wars. Again, for a, a war that in some ways in 2022, is happening across the world. And yet in other ways, with the news cycle, it's a war that's happening in your pockets. You know what I mean? That at any moment throughout the day, you're three seconds away from seeing the latest video, uh, reading the latest update, scrolling through the latest article. And so to that end, I just want to take a couple minutes to, um, after Joe prayed over that, to offer now a pastoral word of encouragement and exhortation as to how we as Christians can engage the news. So if you just bear with me for a couple minutes. Uh, for, for those of us in this room or watching who are professing believers, uh, we ought to be intentional about how we engage with the news cycle, not only this past week, but every week, in our minds and in our hearts in such a way where we control, hear me, where we control what we consume for the purpose of glorifying God and not allow the news cycle to control and consume us. So like that, that question, what, what is the Christian way to think about the news? Have you ever thought about that? Here's what I'd like to offer, that, that our attitude should be defined by being culturally engaged, but not culturally consumed. Culturally engaged, but not culturally consumed. 
And what I'm not saying is that we should stick our head in the sand and avoid it all and kind of just give the kind of trite God is in control so we don't have to worry about it and pretend that there's not real people suffering uh, or real churches under uh, a lot of kind of burden at this moment. Uh, again, to pretend that uh, you know, nothing's happening because it doesn't affect me or my family, and so let me just put my head in the sand and move on another day. It's not what we're called to do, I don't think. But rather, we're called to engage with the news cycle for the purpose of loving your neighbor well. Engage with the news cycle for the purpose of loving your neighbor well through prayer and action. That when you're engaged with what's going on, it will inform how you pray and and allow you to pray well and then love well where you have the opportunity to do so. But if we do not approach the news cycle with that lens to be engaged with the purpose of loving our neighbor well, we will be drawn into just being dominated by it, consumed by it, or getting so desensitized to that brokenness that you kind of just stop caring, and it's just the doom scrolling, but no facial expression on your face. And and I I know that's not easy. And as someone who loves to engage the news, I'm I'm very much plugged in, and, and not just on kind of major current events, but sports and all these different elements of what's happening in the world. I, I, I kind of love consuming that, I got to be honest. And so I have to check my own heart in this, and I don't want to make that sound simple, culturally engaged but not culturally consumed. Um, but, but let me just maybe put it like this. Um, do not engage with this without being rooted in this. Don't consume the ever-changing news cycle without being rooted in the never-changing Word of God. So let me give you, you know me, I have one book recommendation for you this morning, and then we will get going in Galatians 3. But I'm almost through reading this book myself, but I've I've read enough to the point where I can gladly recommend it, and I'm going to have it on the screen, just the cover of it. It's called Reading the Times. A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. If that sounds like the most boring book you've ever kind of seen and been recommended, I promise it is fascinating. And for people who are constantly connected with the world around us, this will serve you well. The middle third of the book, which talks about the concept of time, that there's two ways to measure time in the Bible— uh, kairos and chronos, so the kind of root Greek words. It's God's time versus human time. I'm telling you, that's worth the price of this book just itself, just that middle third, but the rest of it's good too. Let, let me read you one quote. Again, it'll be on the screen. He says, Christians cannot replace morning prayer with the news, but neither can we discard the news. Instead, we have to inhabit the often painful and confusing tension between kairos and chronos. Prayer and the news, divine redemption and the events of history. So church, maybe this is as good as a Sunday as ever to just remind us to be intentional with how we engage with the news. The news of our times as as culturally engaged believers for the purpose of informing prayer and love for our neighbor as God calls us to and not culturally consumed where we are blinded to God's providence and promises. All right, we are in Galatians 3, this letter that we are walking through verse by verse. This morning we're going to be covering verses 10 to 14, 
And before we read them, I think you can make the case that these verses capture the entire thesis of the letter of Galatians. There's, there's not really going to be something new he's going to say this morning, but I think in these few verses, he's going to capture kind of the heart of what he's saying in the most kind of concise, clear, and compelling manner. Uh, in, in fact, uh, theologian and pastor John Stott takes a step further and says, these verses are fundamental to understand the story of the Bible as a whole. You want to kind of launch from a place of what's the Bible about? What does it teach? What, what, what's it matter to my life? That you can kind of see these verses as kind of a thesis, a foundation for the Bible as a whole. Uh, I talk a lot about how, how important it is as believers to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And, and, and part of that kind of preaching, what do, you do, what do you need to be reminded of every day? I think you're going to find some of that in these verses. That none of us, as long as we're here, are going to get beyond needing what we're going to hear and see today. And the reason why uh, I think Stott said that is because we're going to see Paul standing at a theological fork in the road. And before him, there are two roads, two ways every person can live and will choose whether they realize it or not. That You can't do both. You can't take both roads at the same time. You're going to choose one. And it reminded me, and maybe uh, you think like this as well, that when you think back across your life, do you remember those moments or those decisions where you had to choose the figurative road where you were going to take in life? The moments that likely came with some angst and some fear of making the wrong decision. But either way, a time came where you realized, I have to choose where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do. I think back to the spring of my senior year in high school. Um, all my friends had decided at this point where they were going to go after graduating, whether they chose a college or a trade school or a plan to work, that they kind of had their next step mapped out. And the date was approaching May 1st. I don't know if that's still the date that you have to choose by, but like that was a date I was dreading. I was like, how can I slow time down to May 1st? Because I knew I had to decide by May 1st, the deadline to commit to a school. And I had in my mind all these factors in my head as to how I wanted to incorporate the decision. Um, I wanted to play basketball, but I also knew that I would not be playing basketball beyond college. This was going to be the last step for me, so I did not want that to dominate my decision. Um, I wanted to study finance, mostly because I didn't know what else I wanted to do at that moment and felt pressured to choose something. So I had to think about major in the business school. I had to think about the cost of the school. There was one that was way more expensive than the other. But um, the other one had a better business school. I had to think about distance being a factor. If I was going to play ball, did I want my parents to be able to come and watch and, and factor theirs in? So I had all these kind of things in my head. But I'm standing at this fork and I'm forking the road. And I'm going, i got to choose. Feeling the angst of that moment. And if you were to kind of go around and put some thought into that, that you've had probably several of those moments in your life, whether it was a school or a job offer or a relationship decision, do I stay with this person? Do we pursue marriage or not? Will I move to another place or stay here? Do I choose this roommate or that one? Should I try out for this team? Should I join that club? Surely you can look back and remember those fork in the road moments for you that shaped the trajectory of your life. And those moments were important. They will be important when they come in the future. And they're different for all of us. But the implications of them are for this world, right? This morning, Paul's fork in the road that he's going to share 
has implications that are eternal for everyone. So that's the lens through which I want to approach these verses this morning. It's Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Here are the two roads that lie before all people that have ever lived. It is a road that is defined by a life of salvation by faith or a road that is defined by a life of salvation by works. A road that says, God justifies me, or a road that says, I will manage to justify myself. And again, if you've been with us throughout this series, Paul, up until this point, he has been basically saying this same thing, but in all different ways. Paul is showing the Galatians at this point in the letter that he's not introducing a new gospel. Paul is not coming with a kind of innovative gospel or a new belief, but he is showing the church how salvation by faith has always been God's intention for his people. This has always been the plan. This is not plan B, but this has been the way God has designed the world since the beginning. And since this is the exact place in his letter where Paul knows his readers will be paying the most careful attention because this is where he's unpacking the fact that this has always been the belief. Have you ever gotten a letter or an email or a text that you know there was some heat with it, there was some tension with it, and you know you were reading every single word closely. And you found, you kind of scan through the beginning pleasantries of a letter and you get to the meat of it going, what are they saying? Either to disagree with it or to affirm it. I think this is that point in that letter where everybody is going to be reading every single word he is writing. Which is why, notice how much Paul is quoting Old Testament scripture at this very moment. It happened twice last week in the first nine verses of chapter three. And then in these five verses, he directly quotes the Old Testament four times. What's Paul doing here? Paul is indicating to everyone, including the false teachers, who are reading this to pick him apart. He's indicating to everybody, this is not my opinion. This is not Paul's gospel. This is not something new. This is what God says. Take it up with him. So even before we see what he says, isn't there something for us in there? I mean, even talking about what we did at the beginning, about the news cycles and all the information that gets put out, how, how all believers, especially those who are called to teach and preach, do not start with, here's what I say, but here's what God says. 
even parents being in the home or raising children, that the message you're giving to your children week after week is not, here's what I want you to do, but here's what God says. Uh, Mark Dever says it better than I can. He says, uh, first, the nature of preaching as the heralding of God's word means that any and all Christian preaching necessarily derives its authority from being rooted in and tethered tightly to God's word, the scriptures. This is why every time Pastor Joe or I stand up, the first thing you're going to hear us say from this pulpit is, let's open up our Bibles. And, and give us the passage through which everything we're going to kind of launch from coming after. In, indicating in that moment that, that everything we say from up here has to be rooted in and tethered tightly to God's word. That the message is not, hey guys, here's what I think. Sit down and listen. But here's what God says. Because if I do get to a place where I say, hey guys, sit down and hear what I have to say. You should not sit back and listen. You should stand up and walk out. But at this gathering, this is what God says. Take, take it up with him. And here's what Paul will show from God's word. Again, so founda foundational to everything we think about and believe in the Christian faith and Christian life. Number one, he says the way of the law is a curse. Number one, the way of the law is a curse. Again, picture yourself being the original audience, the original congregation reading this letter in a house church somewhere in modern-day Turkey, in the region of Galatia. Let's read these words closely because that's what they were doing. He says, verse 10, for all who rely, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Here's what's so vital about this passage. Paul does not indicate that the law is bad or that the law is evil, or that the problem is with the law. The law is vital, and we know it, because Paul is going to talk about this kind of relationship, relationship between law and faith um, over and over again throughout chapters 3 and 4. You're going to be well-versed in Paul's thoughts on the law and faith. And Paul does not say the law is a curse, right? Reading carefully, he does not say the law is a curse. He says all who rely on obedience to the law, meaning rely on it for salvation, or under a curse. So there's a couple questions here. Uh, what is Paul referring to when he says law? He's referring to the Mosaic law. It's the law that God gave to Moses to give to the people of Israel after they were saved from slavery in Egypt. And there are generally three elements of the law that are incorporated to what Paul means when he says law. So I'm going to have him on the screen just kind of break down, like, what are the three elements for law? A lot of you guys know this. If you don't know this, this will be very helpful for you as you read and engage with your Bible. Number one, there's the, there's the moral law. And that can be summed up kind of primarily through the Ten Commandments. Uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not covet uh, etc. The kind of the moral law that transcends time. Then there is, in the Old Testament, the ceremonial law. And this specified how Israel was to worship, uh, what sacrifices to make, what foods to eat or not eat, what festivals to celebrate to make them distinct and holy from the nations around them. 
And then there was third, the civil law that outlined the procedures and the punishments for crimes and and really kind of handled the governing aspects of the nation of Israel. So you have the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law. All this combined is the law that Paul speaks of. And that law is good. You know why it's good? Because God gave it. It was instated by him. And the problem is not the law. The problem is those who cannot abide by or perfectly obey the law in their own strength. And that's where Paul gets to his first quote of the Old Testament. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. When Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel before he dies, before Joshua is about to take over, Moses is giving his final words in the book of Deuteronomy. And he says in Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul is saying that in order to live by the law and it not be a curse, in order to take that road, you got two roads ahead of you, in order to take the road of I'm going to justify myself through obedience in the law, in order to take that road and not be cursed, you need to abide by all of it. You cannot break it once. Sum it up like this. If you want to be saved by works, if you want to be saved in yourself, you need to be perfect. And therein lies the problem. The the, the law is not like a buffet line where you can kind of go down the line of the buffet, take some parts of it, believe others. Pick and choose what's best for you. Pick and choose what you can do, what you prefer, but then leave the parts that you don't like untouched. Paul says that's not the way it works. If you want to rely on the law, you need to abide by all of it. And so you can see in this what Paul means when he says the law is not the problem. The law actually exposes the fact, he'll he'll get into this later, that the law exists in part to expose the fact that it's our hardened hearts that are the problem. Because the law in its, the fact that we cannot obey it, kind of magnifies and shows and exposes the fact that we fall short. Uh, Here's an illustration I've heard uh, years ago that has helped uh, make this concept stick for me. Um, Show of hands, how many of you have ever had an MRI done? An MRI. All right, most of you. I have not had an MRI done yet. And if it happens this week, I just brought that on myself. (laughs) What is the job, you don't have to answer this, what is the job of an MRI machine? It provides a scan to detect problems in different parts of the body. And an MRI machine is important in that it exposes what is wrong. But the MRI machine can do nothing to heal the problems it exposes. Right? Nobody goes into an MRI machine to get healed. Nobody comes out of the MRI machine frustrated that they're still in pain or something is still wrong. Because that machine is meant to expose the problem, not give you the remedy for the problem. In the same way, the law is good and the law is vital. But the purpose of the law in regards to salvation is to show what is wrong in our hearts, not to heal our hearts. 
And therefore, Paul is saying anyone who does rely on the law, meaning anyone who does rely on their own obedience to God in their own strength, they're under a curse because no one is able to follow it perfectly in their own strength. And as a result, we stand in rightful condemnation before the Lord when we choose the road to becoming saved by works. Whether or not you have the God of the Bible in mind for that, or you have your own God of your own making, or you have no God, the idea that I justify and manage for myself in life, it's up to me. That road, it's a wide road that leads to condemnation. And that is why Paul is writing this letter. He's saying, church, these false teachers, this is what they are promoting. They're putting some good wording around it, but this is a works-based salvation. And it's a dead end. You're going down a road. That's a dead end. There's no escape. Because all, remember, all, read carefully, all, this is Jews, this is Gentiles, this is all backgrounds, this is every one of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is why we say that even those in this world that we would say are quote-unquote good people and that they do good things and that they can love well by God's common grace, they have good character by our judgment, that we would say even those who we would consider good people are still lost because there are no perfect people. As one pastor put it, he said, if you can't swim, it doesn't matter if you're five feet from the dock or 500 feet, you're still going to drown. The issue is not how far you are. The issue is you can't swim. And if you can't save yourself or heal your own sin or put yourself in right standing before God, it doesn't matter if you're just a little disobedient or very disobedient. You're still condemned before the Lord. This is the way of the law, and it's a curse. Then number two, Paul writes... Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus became a curse for us. Uh, Now, since Paul was writing to a church, again, that consisted of professing believers, uh, both Jew and Gentile, he, he moves right to Christ here. But perhaps there's a question in your mind at this point, or perhaps there's somebody in your life that would ask a question at this point. Isn't that just kind of harsh of God? We're just going to let him off the hook with that? Doesn't that sound kind of harsh of just anyone who breaks the law? What you just told me is everyone will stand before God and be condemned for all of eternity? That's the message? Maybe you're thinking of a certain person that is a non-believer, but you know them to have better character than many. Maybe even at times yourself as a professing believer. Maybe you're thinking of those who never heard the name of Jesus before. Even now, unreached people groups, people groups who don't even have a Bible in their own language. Like, how could that be fair? Can't he just overlook a certain amount of sin since he's God? I bring that up because I understand that question. But I offer to you that the Bible says that that question is backwards. Let, let me flip it. Since he's God, he can't just overlook any amount of sin. If he did, he would not be God. He would not be holy 
uh, just as a justice system in this country would not be just if it just kind of overlooked those who broke its laws. So too, God would not be just and loving if he overlooked those whom he created that rebelled against his rule and his reign. But not only does God just not overlook it, he actually does something far better. He did something that was way more powerful than overlooking sin, something that shows his love and his character. He paid the price himself. He sent his son Jesus to take on flesh. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You know, so far in this letter uh, of Galatians, Paul has already told us what he wants of the church. He wants them to resist falling for a false gospel and to return to the true gospel they once believed. That salvation is through Christ alone. He's already told us at this point why he wants this, because there is no other gospel that has the power to save. But now he tells us how God saves us. Through his Son taking our place, by Jesus redeeming us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. Jesus is the only one who came and perfectly obeyed the law. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never had a stray thought. I know most of you have known that your entire life, but could you just think about that for a second? Jesus never had a stray thought. He never uttered an evil word. He never engaged in a hateful action. Jesus is the only one who followed the way of the law. Jesus' MRI scan was clear. It was clean. But he chose to become a curse so that he could heal what was broken and restore the relationship that was torn apart, both the individual relationships with, between him and all those he's created and the fracturing of the entire cosmos and at that point, Paul quotes another passage in Deuteronomy 21, this time verse 22. He says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And Paul connects that line that Moses gives in his last words to the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus who died on a wooden Roman cross, a cross that was made from a tree. And those like those in the Galatian church who know their Old Testament and they know their scripture, they, because of this verse, viewed anyone killed on a tree as being cursed by God because God's word said it. So Paul says, Jesus was sent by God, born of a woman, to redeem and restore those separated from him, which is to say, Jesus was born to die, born to be a curse. And it's not until the Holy Spirit reveals in the hearts of those who hear that he became a curse for them. It's one thing to believe Jesus died on the cross. It's another thing to believe that he died on the cross for you. And it's at that moment where the Holy Spirit turns the lights on and sets you free and takes you off the road of trying to do this yourself 
and puts you on the road to say, this is Jesus' work, not yours. Jesus, who has what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him. He was not sent against his will. This was not a father and son and kind of a cosmic battle between them that the son eventually relented. He says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It does not mean he enjoyed the cross. It's that for the joy of what he knew the cross would accomplish. Despising the shame. In Jesus, the curse is reversed. And those held in bondage to the curse of the law are redeemed, bought and set free, healed and restored. Which leads to number three. The way of faith is life. The way of faith is life. The next question is, is this redemption for everyone who's ever lived? And the answer is no. It is for those who receive the person and work of Christ through faith. Paul unveils the second road in verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. This quotation is from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. And that particular part of that verse is repeated not once in the New Testament, not twice, but three different times. That that phrase is hollowed ground throughout the Scripture, showing it to be foundational truth for believers. Again, not just the front door of the Christian faith, but the foundation of the whole house. You know what I mean? This is the gospel we preach. This is the foundation of our lives, that the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul didn't introduce it. This was God's plan from the beginning. In Habakkuk, if you remember, the prophet was struggling with God's plan. It's kind of a crazy book, Habakkuk. You should read it sometime. Right? God's plan for the nation of Israel was that he was going to send an evil nation to come take them into exile. He raised up an evil nation to come take his people out to exile. And Habakkuk is struggling with that. I get it. And Habakkuk says in chapter 2 that he will wait on his watchtower and get an answer from God because, God, I don't get it. And that leads to God responding to Habakkuk. These, is, these are God's words. And God gives a contrast between the proud and the just. All of verse 4 in Habakkuk 2 says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. He's referring to the evil nation he's raising up. His soul is puffed up. It is not up right in him, but the righteous shall live by faith. God told Habakkuk, there are two roads to take in life. The life of being puffed up and relying on your own strength, or a life of living by believing in him and relying on God's strength. Or you could say from Habakkuk 2, there's the way of the law, or there's the way of faith. The two other times this phrase was used in the New Testament is Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. And it's the passage in Romans that Martin Luther was studying and teaching in the year 1519 that he came across this phrase that stopped him in his tracks. Romans 1.17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther couldn't get past it. And he was asking, what does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? Luther, to this point, believed and taught with the Catholic Church, taught at the time that someone is justified when God, through the sacraments of the church, is uh, made righteous, that, that, that makes unrighteous people righteous when you obey God through the sacraments of the church, which is to say that grace is infused to believers through works. But Luther is studying this word. He's studying the Greek in this word, which was different because he wasn't going by the Latin translation that the Catholic Church was going by. He goes back to the root, the Greek word for justification, and he's reading it in context of Romans 17, and he sees that one is not made righteous through sacraments or through works, but one is declared righteous through faith. You are not made righteous. You are declared righteous. You are not made righteous by your works. You're declared righteous by another's work. Not something you achieve, but something you receive. That God freely gives by his grace. And he was stunned. And it turned the lights on for Martin Luther. And in that moment, even as a priest or in the Dominican order who was uh, uh, teaching Scripture, raising up other priests and sending them out, he fell in that moment. He felt his own shame go away, his own shame that he was never going to be good enough. And he was free for the first time. And Luther said in his own words, and I'll have the quote on the screen, when I discovered that, meaning that phrase, I was born again of the Holy Ghost. And the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. From there, Luther would go on to be one of, one of, if not the, central figure of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. A movement who, like Paul, did not change doctrine, did not form a new religion, but one that reformed Christianity back to its biblical and early church roots. And that phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, is what God used to save a man who changed the world. Luther found himself standing at the fork in the road, two paths before him, salvation by faith, salvation by works, this is the fork in the road that we have all stood at. It's a fork of the road that perhaps you're standing at in this very moment. There's two ways to live. And, and friend, if you're here this morning and you have no faith in Christ, or you're listening or watching this morning and you have not made the decision to receive the gift of Jesus Christ through faith alone, Friend, cast yourself upon the Lord. He is worthy of your trust, for he alone is the way to life and life everlasting. And he rejects none who come to him. For as you receive him, he will receive you into his family. He shed his blood for you. And in turning from your sin in repentance and turning towards him in faith, he will be united to you. Today is the day. This faith that comes and then the faith that turns 
into a life to live by, for the righteous shall live by faith. And for those of you who have made that decision, who have chosen the path of Christ, when on that road, you know, we are not promised to be free from affliction. We know that we will have to commit to follow him daily, for a life of faith consists of waiting on God's time to achieve God's purposes. A life of faith is waiting on God's time to achieve God's purposes. That's what he told Habakkuk. That's what he told Paul. That's what he's telling us. But that faith gives us renewed courage each day. That faith will govern how we live. And that faith through you will shine the light of Christ in a dark world around you. And while we may never change the world like Martin Luther did, our faith might just change the world for someone like it did for Martin Luther. Let's pray. Father, I pray with everything in me that we would hear your word this morning, that a life by faith is a life worth living. And every day we have the opportunity to walk in faith. And every day the enemy is going to try to derail us from that path, to distract us, to afflict us, to afflict those around us, Lord. And I pray that we would live a life that is defined by waiting on you, believing in you, and understanding that you have chosen to reach the world through the faith of your people, through the ministry of local churches to the ends of the earth. And so, Father, I pray you would strengthen this foundation for those here this morning whose faith has grown weak. And, Father, I pray you would awaken for those who have never believed in you, that your spirit would come upon them now to show them the road that you have marked out for them and to give them the courage to take the first step. It is for the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.